0: Hi, I'm Phil Yields and thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Youth in Education podcast where we explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people. This podcast is brought to you by the Centre for Education and Youth.
1: The Centre for Education and Youth believes society
2: should ensure all children and young people receive the support they need to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. Find us at
1: cfey.org
0: Hi and welcome to the latest episode of the Centre for Education and Youth podcast. Uh, This week is another research roundup and we're going to be interviewing the newest member of our team, Vanessa Joshua, who's going to be talking to us about race. Welcome, Vanessa. Hi. Can you just tell us a bit about what you're going to be talking about today?
1: Um, Yeah, so I have three different reports looking at um, racism in education. So the first one is a longer report. So it looks at uh, racism in secondary and primary. And then the second one looks at the experiences of BAME people in university. And it's slightly more theoretical. And then the third one looks at how we can begin to tackle racism in school.
0: Let's uh, jump straight into the first one then. So the title of this one is Race, Racism and Education, Inequality. resilience and reform in policy and practice. Can you just give us a bit of an overview of what the paper was about?
1: So it's quite a big report. Um, It's the largest of its kind since the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. Um, So it's looking specifically at racism in education in the UK. So it's a mixed method approach. So it has a mixture of qual data. Um, So it's the experiences of 35 people that they've interviewed um, as well as statistical evidence from a cohort of 5,000 students. Mm. So it was looking specifically at how much education has changed as a result of the Stephen Lawrence inquiry. What is the state of race equality in contemporary education? Have we achieved a post-racial education system? And are we at a state in which the fundamental divisions such as class and gender have superseded a concern for race? So those are the questions that he's looking at yeah it's quite an interesting <laughs> one so the chapter i'm particularly interested in is called race the forgotten inequality so in this chapter they basically argue that um we've moved to a post race fallacy and that people tend to think that racism is no longer an issue and as a result politicians haven't really been paying attention to race as much as they used to hmm. so they talk about how post Stephen lawrence there was a period of awareness about racism but we seem to have gone kind of backwards since And they specifically talk about how at the time of the Stephen Lawrence report, um, we very much politicized the idea of institutional racism. But since then, we've kind of gone backwards um, and we don't necessarily talk about institutional racism or racism at all.
0: Yeah, you're um, absolutely right. I mean, certainly it's it's not something that uh, mainstream politicians are particularly comfortable talking about at the moment, is it, in the light of the um, Black Lives Matter protests? and You hear people say things like... I
1: think he said um, we need to move away from vic- the victimisation of black people. That really got to me. And he was also talking about the need to talk about, you know, the successes of black people. And it's like, we never suggested that black people aren't successful.
0: Well, yeah, exactly. It's about the access to success, isn't it? It's... Uh...
1: Yeah. Um, and unfortunately, people use those arguments quite a lot. Um, like you see it with, for example, people like Stormzy is like an example people love to use. And they're like, you see, like, black people are successful and race is no longer an issue. Um, and like, we shouldn't really even be speaking about it anymore. And by doing that, we kind of push race to the bottom of the political agenda.
0: I mm. think it's like, I think what's, what's interesting about Stormzy as well is that he, he publicly and repeatedly has said, like to draw attention to the misuse of him as an example of yeah. black, black success and apart from anything else you know he's been successful within a very narrowly defined set of acceptable successes for black people and I find it baffling when people use that to, to say we live in some kind of post-racial yeah. society
1: and to be honest it's like borderline insulting it's like mm. so we should be grateful because one or two people are successful when how many of us are like struggling just to get our foot into the door um, yeah exactly And then when we do get our foot into the door, you know, we have to work twice as hard as some other people just to be able to be taken seriously. Mm. It's quite interesting as well. They talk about in this chapter the loss of language when it comes to racism.
2: Mm.
1: Um, And they talk about specifically how nowadays when somebody, like when you speak to somebody about racism, they'll turn around and be like, the fact that you're talking about race is the issue. You know, the arguments of I don't see race, um, Mm. I don't see colour. And it's like, I'm sorry, but you do.
2: Um, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like you do.
1: Um, And that isn't the issue. We're we're not suggesting that people shouldn't see race, but we shouldn't be oppressed on the basis of our race. Mm. And I think it's problematic to, you know, like not even be able to speak about racism. It's like, how do we even begin to articulate the problem?
0: Yeah, Um, absolutely. Well, and that's the thing, isn't it, is that the people who are keen to say we live in a sort of post-racial society are the people who directly benefit from being white. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so it, it advantages no one except themselves to do that. It's, I mean, it is racist. Isn't it? it just is racist. It is. And I, I, we were talking the other day, actually, weren't we, about implicit bias and bias training as some kind of like thing that's often touted by, particularly in the corporate world, mm. to resolve, to somehow resolve the issue of racism. Yeah. How do you feel about the term implicit bias?
1: For me, I feel like implicit bias is like a useful way to describe like individual actions, mm. but I don't particularly find it to be useful if that's what you're focusing your energy on when we're talking about racism. I feel like you know, the difference between racism and just like normal prejudice is the power aspect and to like focus on individual actions ignores like the fact that we have a system that is built against us and it focuses only on individuals and it kind of places the like blame on them rather than focusing on the institutional impact that like racism has had on people. And to be honest, I think it's just like an easy way to like tick a box and say, you know, like we've done implicit bias training and we're including diversity. And to be honest, from like the research that I've seen, I mean implicit bias can be good like the training itself can be good but it has to be done alongside other things Mm. if you're just teaching people that you know they have biases and almost they can't help it that's not very useful you need to like build it up with other practices that builds anti-racism into the fabric of what you're doing you can't just teach people that you know their biases aren't really their fault and it's like implicit and it's something that we all have it kind of ignores where racism comes from
0: Mm. Well, I think for many people, well, for many people who are powerful in our society, it's very uncomfortable for them to confront the issue that the structure of society itself Mm. is unjust because they feel like, well, it's given them everything, you know. So I feel like, and again, this is what you highlighted when we were talking the other day, implicit bias tends to place the blame on the individual and draw attention Mm. away from the uh, the fact that it is a structural problem, it's to do with the, the fabric of society.
1: Yeah, like for example when they talk about exclusions they talk about implicit bias but it's mm-hmm. ignoring the fact that like 45% of BAME students are in poverty Poverty yeah. is another risk factor when it comes to exclusion BAME people are more likely to be in poverty because of structural racism mm-hmm. um, It kind of ignores the ways in which like racism kind of works in different ways and like it all affects each other and they're interrelated
0: mm. Yeah well I mean the exclusions issue is really interesting isn't it because like uh, it's often it's often chalked up to like teacher bias and stuff, but mm. I mean, it can't be that all the teachers are all actively no. racists, like no. actively like BMP members. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I think I think people are, are like, unwilling to confront the fact that like the, the proportion of like black kids in, who are excluded far outstrips the proportion of black kids in the population. Yeah. So it kind of boils down to either you think that there's something wrong with black kids or there's something wrong with the system.
1: Mm. But But I guess this is like the uncomfortability again. It's mm. like people just don't like to speak about racism or like they just don't even like to see it as an issue. Like for example, the Timpson review, it's supposed to look at the disproportionate effect of exclusions on certain groups and the word racism isn't even used once. It's just like, what was the actual point? Like you've shown us that we're excluded at a disproportionate rate, great now what um
0: we do that <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah,
1: like we already knew that <laughs> yeah <laughs> how many reports do we need to tell us that at this point it's just yeah. like it's it's getting to the point where it's like we know that yeah. these groups are oppressed uh, what use is it continuing to back that up with more statistics
0: yeah it sort of becomes insulting after a while doesn't it just telling you you're oppressed over and over again <laughs> Let's bring it back to the paper. So they were focusing on specifically on structural racism in education. What did they sort of find from that? You mentioned that they were, they'd already spoke about people who were leaving in in the sort of post-racial society. fantasy. So they
1: basically argued that since kind of New Labour up until this government. Race has been completely off the political agenda. And like, this is why racism has continued to flourish because nobody speaks about it and it's like not even accepted as an inequality. Mm. If you don't accept something as an inequality, how do you begin to tackle it? And they overall find that we haven't necessarily moved that much further from where we were when the Stephen Lawrence report was published. And to some degree, like, I don't want to say we've moved backwards, but it's like at least then we spoke about institutional racism, we called it what it is. Mm. Nowadays, we kind of, talk about racism in like a watered down fluffy kind of way talking about like individual biases and so on and so forth, or we just continue to commission reports that like prove it's happening, but we don't actually say what we're going to do about it or what's causing it. Mm. So they say that essentially there's been not much progress because of this. Mm. We need to start addressing racism in like open terms and not using watered down language. And we need to move out of this post-race fallacy.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's difficult, isn't it? Because the people who are doing all these commissions and who, who hold, power in society are overwhelmingly rich white people yeah. <laughs> which I think yeah. segues quite neatly into the second piece which was about uh, racism in the university sector and particularly mentioning the whiteness of higher education you just tell us yeah give us a bit of an overview of that paper
1: so first of all like it had quite a few interesting statistics so it found that of 17,000 professors only 85 were black Mm. 950 were Asian and 365 identified as other, Mm. um, while 15,000 of 17,000 were white. There were no black academics in the categories of managers, directors, or senior officials. And there were only 17 black female professors in the entire British university system. God. Um, And it also found that BAME students continue to be underrepresented in Russell groups universities with Ronnie Mead finding that in London Metropolitan University, they have more black Caribbean students than all the Russell groups have overall. So those were kind of the statistics that they flagged up. There was a a section that was looking at the more implicit ways that racism kind of works in the university system. Mm -hmm. Um, So specifically, it was talking about microaggressions and racism.
0: Mm. Yeah, for the benefit of those who aren't familiar with the term, can you just give some examples of behaviours that would count as microaggressions?
1: So in the report, they interview quite a few BAME professors um, and they kind of noted down their experience. So a lot of them talk about feeling like an outsider kind of against a backdrop of whiteness. So, this can be, so for example, no BAME people being on the curriculum, you know, erasing people from academia, that's like one way that a microaggression can kind of be perpetuated. Or, for example, tutors also expressed when they were bringing up racism that people were accusing them of trying to forward their own political agenda. So, like when people are trying to address racism, you know, being met with a lot of tension. Mm-hmm but like the main way they speak about it is kind of like feeling like an outsider. So whether that being people saying stuff to them or assuming that they don't have the credentials to be in their roles or just generally feeling like an outsider because there is nobody else that looks like them there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's smaller things that build up into a feeling of you being an outsider, or you feeling not welcomed, but it's not necessarily people directly calling you racist words. It's the more kind of Indirect things that happen around you that create like a particular atmosphere.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that you shared with the earlier a, a very powerful quote from one particular black academic, which I think sums up that feeling of otherness really quite poignantly. So he said, Honestly, being a black man, I thought that I'd been marked enough as bestial, as criminal, as inferior. It follows me around at predominantly white philosophy conferences. I'm marked as different within that space, not because I am different, but because the conference space is filled with whiteness.
1: Mm. Yeah, I felt like that was a really powerful quote. And to be fair, it's something I actually felt like when I was at university myself. So like studying history, I was, there was one other black person on my course, but she was the year above and she was only in one of my classes. Mm. But like generally all of my tutors were white. Everyone we studied was white. The history we studied was white. And it creates a feeling of you're just not, I don't know, it's hard to explain. It's like you feel not accepted or not respected. You just don't feel like you're a part of the culture. And it's like several ways in which this feeling is like accumulated into a feeling of just being an outsider. Mm. And, you know, you can see like students having issues with this, with the Why Is My Curriculum White campaign and the Decolonize Our Education campaign. It's like Mm -hmm. students are going into these spaces and the spaces are predominantly white. What they're learning is predominantly white. And then people are surprised that they feel like an outsider. Mm. It's like, how can you feel part of the system when you're not represented in it
0: mm. i think as well this is, is something that many people are very uncomfortable to engage with because people have a lot of respect for the academic world so then mm. saying things like it's overwhelmingly white and calls to like decolonize the curriculum and so on are often met with they're not met favorably
1: no it's not about removing white people from the curriculum. And I feel mm. like that's what people often feel like. And that's what this text says it's, it's not about removing European ideas or diluting them. It's about incorporating other ideas into the curriculum. Because when you've only got white European men on the curriculum, you're perpetuating the idea that only white male Western knowledge is acceptable and everything yeah. else that exists is not. Mm. And to be honest, it does exclude students from like a whole world of academia that has a lot of useful and great stuff in it.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So what was the sort of conclusion of this paper then?
1: So to be honest, there wasn't necessarily a conclusion. The paper was more to like highlight the experiences of black people in I university see. rather than coming up with a conclusion. But generally the conclusion was that most of them never had people say anything to them directly. It was more a feeling of outsiderness or like people not accommodating for them. So in another passage, a Muslim professor talks about how they would have events and they would always have alcohol, like not taking into account that they don't drink. And it's like, it's such a small thing to do to just order some Coke or Sprite or something. And it goes a long way to make somebody feel included or accepted in a space. It's small things like that, that just make you feel like you're not part of the system.
0: Mm. So I think the author had some comments to make about the Macpherson report in this paper. Can you explain what her take on it was?
1: She looks at one specific recommendation in the Macpherson review, and the recommendation was that the police should recognise an incident as racist if one of the parties or a third party described it as racist. And she talks about how this is slightly problematic because it's only seeing racism as an individual action. For example, somebody saying a bad word. To be honest, it seems like she's misunderstanding the report. Um, Hmm. The report itself was the first report to publicize the idea of institutional racism and I think actually when you look at what that recommendation is saying it's actually quite an interesting point and I think it's quite important I think one of the issues we have at the moment is you know you can tell somebody and this has happened to me I can tell someone you know I feel like that was a bit racist or like they done that to me because I'm not white and people will turn around and be like no that's not true and how can you think that and you start to feel like am I imagining it And I do think it's important that if somebody says that they feel like they're being attacked on the basis of their race, that we take them seriously.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: And I think actually that recommendation is quite important rather than watering down the idea of racism. Mm. I feel like it's highlighting the fact that if somebody says something has happened to them, we shouldn't find it so hard to believe when it comes to race. Yeah, well, Um,
0: from what you're saying, it sounds like the author may have just kind of assumed that we're talking about racist incidents as... Well, as you described, like someone using a, a slur or something like that. Whereas, I think what it does empower people to do is say that I am being discriminated against on yeah. the basis of race, not necessarily someone come up to me and called me something.
1: Yeah, I think it's important that you know, like when somebody's saying that they're suffering an injustice, that we take them serious because I Absolutely, think when people say someone's discriminating against them on the basis of race, people just don't necessarily believe it, or they'll be like, "Oh, maybe it's they're just not very nice," or it's maybe because of this, or maybe you're being sensitive, mm. but. If, as a woman, you say someone being sexist, like, I find it's almost easier to believe sometimes. If someone says something is sexist, we take it. But I find sometimes with race, it's like people will find so many other excuses. And it's just like, I'm sorry, if something's racist, then it's racist. Somebody doesn't <laughs> yeah. have to be calling you, like, an offensive word for the, it to be racist.
0: Exactly, well, I mean, I think this ties in nicely to what you said before about how we've kind of got a bit backwards from talking about racism as a structural feature of society. Because people don't want yeah. like to be called racist because they might think that you're calling them like a BMP member rather yeah. than your behavior is supporting the aspect of society that is white supremacist
1: yeah I think that's definitely true I think people are more uncomfortable with being called a racist than they are with like racist actions themselves yeah it's like something racist can happen and people sometimes not be faced, but if you call it racist it's like people are like oh, I can't believe it <laughs> um we've made the word almost like a taboo to some degree
0: yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because racism has become very unacceptable yeah. as, as a thing to engage in. But we're still unwilling to actually do anything about it. Yeah, it's like <laughs> so it's not to be a racist, but <laughs> yeah. like racism's
1: okay itself.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, it's hugely depressing. But on a more positive note, your third paper yeah. is about practical steps taken in Scottish schools, isn't it? Um, yeah. To challenge racism. So can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah, so I was reading another report before, so it was by Ronnie Mead, and it was talking kind of about like the need to be proactive in anti-racism. So I kind of started to look more into proactive approaches to racism. And I came across this report by the Scottish government that's a part of their Respect Me campaign. And again, they talk about the need to actually be proactive in addressing racism and not just kind of seeing it and stamping it out and then moving on. And they have a few recommendations in terms of how schools can begin to address racism and like build anti-racism into their fabric.
0: Before we talk about those recommendations, I think it's probably worth exploring the concept of anti-racism as opposed to just being against Mm. racism. What are your feelings on that?
1: So, you know, I feel like this is the issue these days. It's like I think we've become complacent as a society with people just not being racist or organisations just not being racist in themselves. But Mm. like there's not this big push to be anti-racist or to be openly anti-racist or to like confront racism head on. Mm. And I think, you know, there's a big difference between not being racist as a person or an institution or an organization or taking steps forward to actually make sure it's built into the fabric of what you're doing. So like, for example, most schools I'm sure are not racist, but how many schools actually build anti-racism into what they're doing? How Mm. many of them actually take the time to, you know, include BAME people into the curriculum and actually show people openly that we are anti-racist, not just not racist by Mm. not saying racist stuff? And I feel like it's a huge distinction. And to be honest, I think it's very important now with everything that's happening. People need to realise there is a big difference and it's like, which one do you want to be? Do you want to be just not racist or do you want to be actually anti-racist? And if you want to be anti-racist, you have to take active steps forward to be that.
0: Mm. I think it's really important that you phrased it in a kind of like which side are you on situation because you can be an anti-racist actively challenging racism in society. Or, well, I mean, we're saying not being a racist, but that behaviour is supporting racism as a structural feature of society so that is being you know not quite so directly as going around like on EDL marches but that is racist behavior supporting structural racism.
1: I think in schools as well in particular and I'm not saying you know it's on just like the education sector to tackle racism but it does hold like quite a unique position in terms of it's one of the ways in which racism has been perpetuated Mm. through like certain stereotypes but it also has the capacity to you know like do so much change So I think for that reason, schools do and like organisations working in the youth sector, they seriously need to think about, you know, how are we going to be anti-racist when they hold such an important position?
0: Yeah. And I think what's important, like the thing about schools as well, is like not only what they explicitly teach, but there's also the aspect of the hidden curriculum. So, for example, Mm. when a school sends out a letter forbidding certain hairstyles. Oh. which invariably are associated with non-white people what they're teaching the children is that non whiteness is unacceptable right so yeah it's like well like you said you've got to build it right into the fabric of everything that you're doing as an organization
2: yeah
1: exactly it's like i'm sure those people that send out those dreadful letters see themselves as not racist <laughs> but like I'm sorry it is and you're certainly not being anti-racist. But again, it's the issue of language and I think it's the issue of like people not building anti-racism into what they're doing. People are quite like complacent about it. And it's like, as long as, you know, the staff aren't saying bad words or like explicitly being racist is fine. Mm. But like, it's just not. Education is so key to the anti-racist movement. It's just not good enough for schools to be complacent or silent. Mm.
0: So what steps did this report outline that the Scottish government had implemented?
1: So their main recommendations were, there was quite a few, there was 10. um, So I picked out kind of the four that I found to be the most interesting. Mm. So the first one is obviously include BAME people into the curriculum. And they talk about how like it sends a strong message to the students and their families that the school is inclusive. Mm. And it also directly combats any sort of racist stereotypes. They say school should focus on the social sciences and English language. And they also say, actually, which I found interesting, there was like, it's important to think carefully about the resources that you're using when you are doing this. And to actually think about how you're incorporating BAME people into the curriculum. So like, for example, one thing I often see is during Black History Month, they show us Martin Luther King or they'll talk about slavery or maybe Usain Bolt. And it's kind of the same generic stuff. And it's just like, are you telling me there's no black mathematicians or you know, something else that's like outside of the civil rights movement, slavery or athletes or rappers. Mm-hmm. And they talk about the need to like incorporate into all aspects of the curriculum rather than just picking resources that continue to perpetuate unintentionally the same stereotypes that you're trying to defeat.
0: What was the second recommendation then?
1: The second recommendation is to create visually inclusive learning environments so it talks about the need to, you know, like put posters and displays up that show children of different ethnicities. But like it made kind of a sub point, which I thought was quite interesting. And it was talking about how it's okay to put posters and stuff up that talk about like racial inequality or highlight, for example, the civil rights movement. But it's important that that's it, that isn't the only way in which we incorporate BAME people into like our visual representations across the scores. Mm. And it's important that they're represented in all kind of displays that you have across the score. Mm-hmm. And they talk about how this creates an inclusive environment where students feel like they're accepted and part of the school. So a lot of the stuff that they talk about is like creating a whole school environment in which students feel included. So hence like the idea of like visual representation is quite important that students are able to see themselves in the place that they go to learn. Mm-hmm. The next recommendation talks about how there's a need to just involve BAME people more generally into school life. So it talks about parent forums, student forums, and how they need to be representative of the student population. Mm -hmm. And they also talk about how it's important that there's teachers and senior leadership that's representative of the student population as well. And I mean, obviously, this paper was written in Scotland, but like this is an issue we have in England as well. It's like mm. we don't have enough representation and we certainly don't have enough representation at senior leadership level, let alone when we start talking about Ofsted yeah. um, and those kind of higher levels. Um, so, th- yeah, they talk about the need to incorporate BAME people into school
0: life. Mm. I mean, teaching is an overwhelmingly white middle class profession. And this is kind of ties in with what you were saying in the second paper about academia being an overwhelmingly white middle-class space. So, mm. you, you know, and academia is the route through which you achieve teaching qualifications. I imagine that the outsider feeling is similarly strong in teaching.
1: Yeah, it's like all your colleagues are going to be white, you're teaching mm. a white curriculum. You might have been for a school system that's been discriminatory to, towards you. Mm. And it's just like the education system has to do better to, like, incorporate and make BAME teachers feel safe and included in these environments. Mm. So the next recommendation is that um, schools should have open discussions with students about their awareness and experience of racism. And they talk about the need to have these kind of discussions with parents as well. Um, And to be honest, I thought this was quite interesting. I guess it kind of goes back to like the proactive idea. It's like, it's not enough to just wait for a racist incident to happen. And then when it happens, exclude the student and boot them out. Mm. It's like, we need to actually be having open conversations with students about their experiences of racism and their views and tackle them in safe spaces where students are able to like speak to teachers um, and feel safe to do so. And I think as well, like when we're talking about young people, I do think sometimes it's not just good enough to just exclude them or like ostracize Mm. them because of the things that they say. For example, if they say something racist, it's like, of course, it's not acceptable. And I just think when it comes to children, like you can't just boot them out. You have to teach them why these things are wrong and you have to kind of like essentially educate them and you need to create safe spaces where they're able to have these conversations. Otherwise, they're just going to continue to have these views and nothing's really going to get changed they're just going to be excluded and move on to another school with the same views that they still have
0: mm-hmm. it's similar to to views on how we treat crime is not it? it's important to have restorative mm. justice rather than just seeking to punish them because they yeah. don't move on
1: yeah totally it's just like punishment can't always be the first resort again we have to be proactive and actually address it i think it's easy to just exclude someone and just kick them out it's harder to actually Have these open conversations about race and racism. And then with that being said, they also call for schools to encourage an attitude change. So they talk about some of the approaches that they've seen schools use and which ones have shown to be the most effective. They talk about the need for it to be a whole school approach rather than just, you know, having measures here, there and everywhere. You need Mm -hmm. the buy-in from all of the teachers and it needs to be direct. They need to know what are we doing about racism and how are we moving forward? It can't just be a teacher here, there and everywhere kind of trying to deal with it on their own. Mm -hmm. And they talk about the need to focus on promoting desirable behavior. For example, challenging prejudice rather than just discouraging undesirable behavior. So for example, if you have a student that, I don't know, you have two students and one of them says something that's really racist and another student says, you know, that's wrong. Encouraging the student that like challenges the racist idea rather than always being quick to just discourage behavior and kick um, students out. Yeah. And they talk about the need to encourage empathy in children. So yeah, they talk about the need to like encourage empathy by showing students examples of um, people being different races and being friends.
0: Right. It's Uh, interesting the point about empathy. I've heard that raised a few times with the discourse around the BLM movement. mm. How do you feel about that? Because it feels like calling for empathy is something that's quite difficult to do, given that, well, basically, if you're white, you have never, and until society significantly changes, you will never experience the day-to-day experience of being non-white. So calling for empathy just sounds a bit I mean, it just basically sounds a bit wishy-washy rather mm. than calling for solidarity and, like, taking action together. How, what What's your thoughts on it?
1: To be fair, I, I, like, I agree with what you're saying and I do think as well, like, the problem with racists, like, actual racists is, I guess, like, when, well, when we're talking about people that are, like, hardcore racists, it's like we're telling them to just be a bit nicer or to, like, I don't know, imagine what it's, to, like, what it's like to be black. I, I don't know, I don't feel like that's really going to change their mind. Mm. I don't know. It's a difficult one because I think sometimes it's like we focus too much on people being able to understand stuff. For example, I don't have to understand what it's like to be trans, but I can march in solidarity with them because I can understand what it's like to be oppressed.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: Like, I don't feel like you have to understand what it's like to be black to just think it's wrong. No, And I do think it's a little bit wishy-washy. It's just like, try put yourself in their shoes. And it's just like, I don't know, I just want to see a bit more anger. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. just be outraged with us. It's like, you don't have to understand what it's like to be black. But the same way I don't understand what it's like to be trans or gay, but if I see somebody being oppressed on that basis, it angers me. So yeah, it's a bit of a weird one. I do think it's a bit of a wishy-washy kind of recommendation, but I guess with children, it is slightly more different. Um, they are yeah. like, more malleable. Yeah, so I guess this kind of ties in with the idea of like incorporating BAME people into the curriculum, but I do think this is almost like a sub-point. It's about the way in which we present stuff. I feel like when we talk about colonialism, I don't know, we don't necessarily portray how bad it was. For example, we don't necessarily um, focus on, like, the British involvement in the slave trade. We kind of tend to focus on America. Mm. Um, So it makes certain things quite, like, far removed from us. So when people are talking about racism and historical injustices, people don't really understand what they're talking about. Mm. Um, and i do think it's important that we incorporate kind of the british history of racism into the curriculum so people Mm. kind of understand you know this is something that's very deep rooted it's not something that's been happening for the last five or ten years it's been happening for hundreds of years
0: yeah and as you mentioned already you know we still haven't managed to shake the idea of the empire as a civilizing mission from our curriculum Which is, you know, like I studied history
1: and the amount of people that would be like, but they built railways and it's just like nobody asks them to like they charged into somebody's country. They built railways so they could transport their goods around and now like they should be grateful.
2: Yeah, exactly.
1: It's just like it's absurd the way that we like present stuff. And I think the way that we present stuff and the way that we present history is like it's very important. Mm. If we're presenting the empire as something that wasn't that bad or like something that was civilizing as well, it's like it's a saying that black and brown people were essentially uncivilized to begin with. Mm -hmm. And it just justifies it and it makes it seem like it wasn't that bad. And, you know, people are just being sensitive or victimizing themselves, as Boris Johnson would say.
0: Yeah, well I mean this is exactly it isn't it? And the fact like even if it's presented as bad, but it was still a civilizing mission then, but you're basically just giving it an excuse to have existed. Yeah. Actually it was just a fundamentally racist endeavor.
1: And I think as well, it goes deeper than that. It's like showing people, you know, how does racism perpetuate itself like how is racism perpetuating like the criminal justice system historically mm. and now? It's like giving people an understanding of how racism actually functions. Mm. And I feel like by doing that, people might be a bit more sympathetic.
0: It's been interesting, actually. I've seen a lot, like, there's been a lot of stuff I've seen online from the American movement tracing the Mm. history of American policing back to slave patrols. And I think that use of history has been really important in raising people's general awareness of how racism functions in American society. So I think, yeah, you're absolutely right to talk about using history to. Yeah, it 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 shows
1: people that, you know, like, it's not. I think sometimes when people think of history, they think of it being far removed from us or like. Mm. History is a separate thing, but people don't realize everything that happens in history has a knock-on effect on like what happens today. Mm. We don't live in a vacuum. It's not like we just exist in the present day and nothing before affects us. It's all building up into the system that we live in. Mm. Um, and just because we don't want to talk about race anymore, it doesn't mean like racism is eradicated from the fabrics of society. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a very important, you know, to like highlight these things in school. And I think we can educate people about, you know, how does racism show itself? What's the history of racism and what can we do about it?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, schools are a key mechanism in reproducing social relations, aren't they? Which kind of puts the teacher in an interesting position of being able to subvert that. Mm. So I think, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, so education has a really important role to play in tackling racism. Well, thanks, Celeste, for a fascinating and really important chat about race and education. Thank
1: you for having me. It's been really interesting, really important discussion.
0: If you enjoyed listening to this podcast and want to hear more, please leave us a review and subscribe via iTunes or RSS. If you know someone who'd be interested in this episode, don't be afraid to share it and feel free to contact us via the links in the show notes. See you next time.